If you want a summary of this sermon, look at those three songs back to back to back. Before the throne, there is one gospel, and Jesus loves me. Today we're in the book of Galatians, so go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 2. Our focus is one verse, but we're going to read the context to help us grasp uh, the concepts. Before I read God's word, let me pray. O Lord, by your word and spirit, would you gather and equip your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 2.20 is our main verse this morning, but I'm going to read from 15 down to 21 to give us some context. This is the word of the Lord. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. In 1973, four employees were held hostage by bank robbers during a six-day standoff in Stockholm, Sweden. In an unexpected development, the hostages developed an unlikely bond with their captors. They actually saw their captors as their main source of provision and protection. One woman actually said she trusted those who were keeping her captive. This phenomenon has become known as Stockholm Syndrome, identifying with what keeps you captive, and actually fearing the uncertainty of freedom. In Galatians, Paul addresses those who are being tempted to identify with works of the law, which holds them captive, rather than enjoying the freedom of the gospel of grace. In chapter 5, he insists, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke Of slavery. Freedom in Christ is incompatible with looking to the law to do what the law cannot do, and that is to give life. But instead, life comes through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. So, why did Paul write this letter to the churches of Galatia? He comes in hot in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different 
gospel. It's so bad that in chapter 3, he opens like this. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So Paul's writing here to a regional group of churches uh, to whom he labored to impart the gospel. Acts 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas go preaching through South Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, and they're preaching and winning both Jew and Gentile to Christ. But the Jewish leaders are not pleased with their message. So what was Paul teaching that was so offensive to the Jewish leaders? Here's a sample of the sermon from Acts 13, 38 and 39. He says this, Let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And right before that, Paul had traced the people of God from Egypt to Moses, to Samuel, Saul, and David, and then to Christ, to show them that the promises, the good news of what God had promised to Abraham all the way back here, had been fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But soon after he leaves, a false gospel creeps in, and is rapidly infecting the churches to whom Paul was establishing in the faith, working hard, laboring to, to establish them in the faith, and this false gospel was undermining his work. What was this false gospel? Well, it was man-centered. It was externally oriented. It was ethnically charged, and it was grounded in works of the flesh. Apparently, what the Galatian Christians had been taught by others is that to be authentic heirs of God's promises, they also had to observe Jewish practices and rituals. And this was often summarized just as the law. But Paul says, that is not what I preached. I am passionately against this false gospel. He even calls down a curse upon those who would spread it and rely on it. Here's what John Calvin says about the relevance of Galatians for us today. He says this, Paul's argument against the observances of ceremonies might seem trivial, but Paul fights for it as a fundamental article of the Christian faith. And rightly so, for it is no light evil to quench the brightness of the gospel, to lay a snare for consciences, and to remove the distinction between the old and new covenants. So underneath these external trappings of this false gospel, this is what's really at stake. This is the heart of it. The whole posture is a righteousness that comes through works and not simply by faith, which is backwards, Paul says. He says it's a return to the slavery of the law instead of continuing in the freedom of the true gospel, which is clear as day in one of the verses we just read, chapter 2, verse 16. He says, we know that a person is not justified or that means counted righteous before God. We know that a person is not counted righteous before God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So the gospel is what Paul gives them. The one gospel, the true gospel. He doesn't have to come up with something new. He doesn't have to come up with anything more flashy to give them. He just keeps preaching the gospel with targeted clarity. 
And so as we zero in on verse 20, there's three things I want you to see here. They're literally just staring at us right in the text. Number one, it's Paul's testimony, but if you're in Christ, it's your testimony too, that we're crucified with Christ. Number two, united in Christ. And number three, we live by faith in Christ. And this is important. This verse is the linchpin of what it means to be a Christian. How do you get right with God, and how do you live in this life? So whether you're here and you're a Christian, or whether you're here searching for answers, this message is crucial. This verse is crucial. It's the very heart of the gospel of what Christians believe. So let's start with number one, crucified with Christ. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. When you think about the biblical storyline of redemptive history, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they brought into this world one of the most sobering, disastrous, and inevitable realities, death, spiritually and physically, but not just for them, for the entire human race, because when Adam and Eve sinned, you and I sinned in him. And we keep on sinning. The Bible says we're in Adam. So the refrain of history, you you trace the storyline, it's so-and-so was born, and they died. So-and-so was born, and they died. And it continues to this day as a result of sin. And that's what sin does. It brings upon the curse of death. And that curse is the judgment of God. But even there in the garden... God promised in Genesis 3.15, he promised there would be one who would undo this curse, one who didn't deserve death, but would take on himself the sin of his people and give himself to satisfy the just wrath of God and crush the enemy who tempts his people. There'd be one who would restore the harmony of God's creation and bring his people back into fellowship with him. But how would he do this? How would he undo the curse of death? By dying. By dying, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, humbled himself by taking on human flesh. Unlike you and I, not once did he ever disbelieve or disobey, but he perfectly kept the whole law in thought, in word, and in deed. And unlike you and I, he's the only one to actually be able to have the right to stand innocent before the bar of God's justice. According to God's standards, he is the only truly righteous one. And yet, the goodness of the gospel is that in the kindness, mercy, and love of God, Jesus took our place. He gave his life for ours. He died the death we deserve. This is how the Bible explains what happened on the cross. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 53, 5, he has borne our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And 1 Peter 2, 24 recalls this truth, and he says, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, and here's the turn, that we might die to sin and live 
to righteousness. Paul explains further that because of Christ's death as our substitute, it was as if we died with him, crucified with Christ. The work was done by him, but he shares the benefits with us. So if you're a Christian, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, so were you. But what does that mean? What does it mean if Paul's writing this letter, how is it that he has died? What he's talking about is the old Paul, the Paul that was subject to the curse of God, the Paul that tried to prove that he was righteous before God. That Paul has died. He says, look, I used to think I could do it all myself, that if I just tried harder and harder, then I could stand on my own two feet before the Lord. And Paul says, I did it better than anyone else until I met Jesus, and he brought me to my knees. So Paul was called out of this life of self-sufficiency and into a life of Christ-dependency. And if you believe Paul's gospel, then his story is your story. Your old self has been crucified with Christ, dead. Your guilty record has been wiped clean, and that means the penalty of your law-breaking, which all of us have committed, that penalty has been carried out, but not upon you. It's been carried about, carried out on Christ. Your account is paid in full by the precious blood of Christ. This is Romans 6, 6 to 7. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You're free, free from the curse of God, free from the curse of death. Like a creditor calling you when your account has already been paid, death has no claim on you. And that is good news. So maybe for some of you here today, what you need to hear are Christ's words on the cross when he says, it is finished. That means if you have been crucified with Christ, then that reckless life that you lived before becoming a Christian not guilty. That means that that sin that you committed that still plagues your conscience and you committed it even as a Christian, not guilty. That means that that besetting sin that you're still wrestling with today, if you've been crucified with Christ, not guilty because your guilty self has been crucified with Christ and you are dead. And you are not guilty because Christ loved you and he gave himself for you and he took your guilt upon him and put it in the grave and you have died. This points to our point number two, to the mysterious union with Christ that we experience in the gospel. And it's one of the most glorious realities of scripture. Point number two It is no longer I who live, but Christ 
who lives in me. Paul unpacks this idea of union with Christ throughout his letters. He mentions in Christ or in him 167 times, so it's pretty central. Uh, John Murray argues that it's the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It underlies every aspect of redemption. J.I. Packer says, Union with Christ is the framing fact whereby all the specifics of salvation meet us. But here is the gist of what union with Christ means. There's never been and there never will be a time when God thinks of you apart from Christ. There's never been, there never will be a time where God thinks of you apart from Christ. But we can think of this in three ways, three aspects that Scripture lays out for us. First, we can think of it eternally. Ephesians 1.4 says this, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So this verse, this is God choosing us and setting his love upon us from eternity past. This could be considered the eternal union with Christ. Second, in the unfolding plan of redemptive history, God manifests this reality in real time. This is considered the redemptive union with Christ, which is made possible by the eternal union with Christ. Because God has decreed and that his chosen people, the elect, will be holy and blameless before him, then when Jesus Christ went to the cross, accomplishing that, he bore the sin of all his people, past, present, and future, by their redemptive union with him. And not only that, but he clothes us in his perfect righteousness as if it were our own. Third, the third aspect of union with Christ is that by working faith in us, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ in a saving union at conversion. Like the Valley of the Dry Bones in Ezekiel uh, 37, this brings us from death to life. Before this moment of new birth or, or regeneration, in terms of salvation, it's still true that we were dead in our sin, that we were outside of Christ. But because God eternally and redemptively unites us to Christ, in the moment we receive that gift of faith, the lights come on. The light of Christ is shown in our hearts, and he comes to dwell in us by his Holy Spirit. He is united to us, and we are united to him in such a way that we are one. We are one. We see a combination of all three of these aspects in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is what it says. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. John 3.16, probably one of the most popular verses in Scripture, and you run into people that aren't even Christians that know this verse. John 3.16, whoever believes in him, in Christ, will not perish, 
but have eternal life. Well, if you look at it, the word for in there, when it says believes in him, this word for in is not just mere knowledge about the facts of Christ. It's not just knowing about Christ. But this is a surrendering, positional relocation. No longer standing on your sandy ground, but throwing yourself on the rock of Christ. That word in can also be translated into, and it carries movement here. You are relocated from in Adam and sin and death to in Christ. You believe into Christ, and you have a new address. This happens by not, not by any effort of our own, but by God putting his spirit within us. The Westminster Larger Catechism chooses four really helpful words to describe union with Christ. It says, when God puts his spirit within us, we are united to him spiritually and mystically, yet really, and I find this one beautiful, inseparably, inseparably united to Christ. You can never be disunited from him. God does not hit the undo button. He doesn't hit control Z. The risen Jesus sits in one location at the right hand of God, but he told his disciples it was better that way because he would send his spirit to be in many locations. He would send his spirit so that he might take up residence in the hearts of everyone who believes. So when you think about this aspect of union with Christ, here's another way to think about it trinitarianly. The spirit applies to us what the Father has decreed of us and what Christ has accomplished for us. I'll say that again. The Spirit applies to us what the Father has decreed of us and what Christ has accomplished for us. Sinclair Ferguson brought out this point about union with Christ. He says, if we're united to Christ then we're united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. We share in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his heavenly session, and in his promised return. Because if we are united to him, we share in him and all his benefits. So if you're a Christian, the first point's true. Then you've been crucified with Christ. But guess what? When Christ walked out of the tomb on the third day, so did you. And you're alive. But it, it's not the old you who walked out of that tomb. It's the new you. It's the in Christ you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because union with Christ is personal. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. What isn't in there? Behold, the new has come. So this is the fundamental identity for the Christian. If you think of identity, maybe you think of some sort of ID card. Maybe you think of a driver's license. And here's what it says if you're a Christian. It says, name, child of God. Status, united with Christ. Address, seated in the heavenly places. 
date of birth, when the Spirit breathed new life, issued eternity past, expires, never, never expires, because you're united with Christ for all eternity. Consider this as well. There is both a vertical reality to this and a horizontal reality. We sang about this reality in the song, There is One Gospel. If I am in Christ and Christ is in me, then God treats me like he treats his own son, like a son. Uh, Galatians 4, Paul says later in in the letter, he applies it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Union with Christ means that we get what he has. Righteousness, peace, communion with the Father, a heavenly inheritance, and a kingdom. My friend once told me about his friend, so this is twice removed, but that's all right, it still works. My friend told me about his friend who was engaged to a woman who was an heir to a multi-billion dollar business. Multi-billion dollar business. On their wedding day, when he laid his, pillow, laid his head down to rest on his pillow, he had $13,000 to his name. The next day, he woke up and had $13 million in his bank account. An inheritance, a down payment, because there's more to come, that was his by virtue of his marital union with his wife. Now, how much greater is our inheritance by our saving union with Christ? This inheritance defies numerical value. It makes $13 million look like monopoly money. So are you struggling with too low a view of yourself? Statistics would suggest that many of us here are. Maybe you're wondering how God or anyone else or even yourself could love you. Dwell on this. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. If Christ dwells in you, then you can never be more or less loved than you already are in him. And that's a vertical benefit of union with Christ. Horizontally, being united with Christ unites us to everyone else who's united with Christ because Christ is not divided. Christ is one. This is a reason Paul rebuked Peter so sharply earlier on in chapter 2 of Galatians. As, um, Paul knew that he was free in Christ to eat with Gentiles. But when the Jewish leaders showed up, Paul distanced himself, or Peter distanced himself. Paul says later in chapter 3, he says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ is the head of one body, the church, one people, the church. When Jesus confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, the light shines from heaven, 
Saul falls to his knees. He hears the voice of Jesus speaking to him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? By this time, of course, this is in the book of Acts. So Christ has come, he's lived, he's died, he's he's resurrected, and he's ascended. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. How could it be that Saul, before he becomes Paul that we know him in Galatians, how could it be that Saul was persecuting him? Union with Christ. Because Jesus so identifies with his people that when his people are persecuted, he takes it personally. Union with Christ is personal, and he loves his church. You have a Savior that fights for you. He considers you so a part of his own body that he came from heaven to walk the sin-laden roads of your life and to go to the death-drenched ground of your grave so that as Colossians 2, 14 and 15 said, to cancel the record of debt that stood against you, to nail it to the cross, to disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. To claim a people for himself that are united with him and united with one another. So that when I meet another Christian, it's like Christ in me meeting Christ in you. Which means there's no room in Christ's church for prideful disassociation. That's what Peter was struggling with. There's no second-class Christians. The poorest person in the eyes of the world, if united to Christ, is richer than a billionaire. If you've ever traveled to another country for global missions, and you've met somebody who doesn't speak the same language as you, doesn't eat the same food as you, doesn't look like you, has an entirely different way of thinking than you. But if they're united to Christ, you're united to Christ, and you experience this unexplainable connection. You experience an exchange of joy, an exchange of hope, an exchange of love because of union with Christ. That is the most fundamental identity marker of, of anyone who is in him. So number three, living by faith in Christ. This is the, the last part of this verse in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't it beautiful to sing Jesus Loves Me together? I don't know about you, but I heard the, the children singing way out on that one. So how do we live in this life? Well, Paul wants to say it's not by blood, sweat, and tears. It's not by careful obedience to the rules. It's not just by giving Jesus a nod every now and then when it feels convenient. But he says it's by faith. It's by faith. But this faith is a living and an active faith. It's a faith that never stops looking to Christ. Christ living in me is the engine for a life of faith and the engine for real change. Because I've been crucified with Christ, because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, then each day the Lord gives me breath. I know I only and ever continue by Christ living in me. 
and looking to him by faith and never looking elsewhere for my standing before God or for my hope for living before him. And this is the payoff for what Paul is arguing in the whole letter to the Galatians. We can think about it this way. Typically, it's good financial advice to diversify your portfolio. Why? Because if one investment fails, you've got others to back you up. But Paul wants to say, when it comes to salvation, to diversify your portfolio is to compromise it all together. You can't hedge your bets. It can't be Christ and works. It can't be one foot on grace through faith and one foot on trusting in your own flesh. If you do that, Paul says, you miss Christ. You've got to be all in with Christ or else you're all out. If you look at the next verse after verse 20, verse 21 says, to trust in works of the law is to nullify the grace of God and to declare the death of Christ on the cross purposeless. Because you can't improve upon Christ. That is the heart of the false gospel that was infecting the church in Galatia. And he continues. This is how he says about life in Christ. He says in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, to these foolish Galatians, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or was it by hearing with faith? So are you so foolish now, having begun by the Spirit, are you, are you trying to be perfected by the flesh? It's foolishness. The false gospel said faith wasn't enough. But Paul says you never move on from faith. So what's faith? Uh, I like this really short definition from Ligon Duncan. He says faith is self-abandoning trust in Jesus. Self-abandoning trust in Jesus. A trust in Christ and his full sufficiency. Not temporarily turning to him and then putting your head back down and trusting in yourself or anyone else. But it's keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who loved me and gave himself for me and lives in me. Dane Ortland has this uh, great section in his book called Deeper, where he unpacks the implications of union with Christ for daily living in him. And he says this, uh, he says, living by faith in Christ is not three things. It's not Christ then me. It's not Christ not me. Nor is it Christ plus me. It's Christ in me. Let's summarize each of those. The Christ then me mentality says, thank you very much. I'll take it from here. And this is the Galatian false gospel. The Christ not me outlook says, let go and just let God. As if we're puppets on a string. And this falls short of the personal nature of being united with Christ and the renewing power of the gospel for a life of faith and repentance. The Christ plus me posture says to Jesus, I'll call you when I need you. But the Christ in me says this, like Paul in Colossians 1.28, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, 
that he powerfully works within me. There's a combination there. It's recognizing that God glorifies himself by doing all the work to resurrect dead sinners to new life and to empower empower them by his spirit to live before him and for him. So, we think about ourselves. We're all foolish Galatians at times. We quickly turn to works of the flesh for our confidence before God. Like muscles that atrophy over time, we're prone to forget the free grace of the gospel unless we visit it frequently. That's one reason why every Sunday in our order of worship, we walk through the gospel to remind us who we are in him. And so let's be clear, though. In Ephesians 2, it says that Christ saves us not only from something, but to something. He saves us to a life of good works that we should walk in in them. But over and over again, Paul says that those good works are never the grounds of our justification, never the grounds of our standing before God, but they are the necessary fruit. They are the necessary result that comes with true saving faith. In John 15, Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the branches. True branches Abide in the vine. And this is his own illustration for union with Christ. And astoundingly, Christ says, He abides in us that we might go and bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. But even those good works are the work of his Spirit in us. Perhaps one of Satan's most devious threats upon Christians is not enticement towards worldly living. That is a threat, of course. But perhaps more devious is that subtle temptation to depend on your own works. We might not say it that way, but it's self-sufficient living. It's thinking that we can do it all ourselves. And what God does often is he shows us our own weakness. I have a friend who's struggling with Uh, debilitating sciatica. And as he has thought through this and prayed through this, he's, he's seeing that one of his biggest struggles is letting people help him. Because a man is supposed to to strengthen up, to pick himself up, and to press on until you can't. And God shows you your weakness. And God shows you your need for help. And he says, God is teaching him that, how to receive help. The true gospel of grace is free. What God requires of you, he provides for you. The last part of that verse, when it says, when Christ loved me and gave himself up for me, there was a trade on the cross. My sin for his righteousness. And then by God's grace, we really do grow in this life. He really does conform us more and more into the image of Christ that he decreed long ago. As surely as God justifies the believer, he will sanctify him. But it's all a work of grace. It's all a life of faith. Whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or five decades, God's approval of you never comes from your own work. God approves of you 
because he sees you, if united to Christ, not as a tattered, filthy sinner, but as wrapped in the righteousness of his son who loved you and gave himself up for you. That is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. So what about you? It's good, as Joe led us earlier in the prayer time, to consider, what about you? Where do you stand? It's not enough just to have Christ out there. It's not enough just to learn about Christ. Do you have Christ? Have you been crucified with Christ? Have you been raised with Christ? Does he dwell in you by his spirit? Are you trusting him for a life of faith and repentance? Or are you waking up each day to eat the bread of anxious toil? That's what Psalm 127 says. That's a life of trusting ultimately in what you can do. But by faith, are you resting in Christ and what he has done? Turn to Christ and say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, may we never lose sight of our union with Christ. Our only hope of heavenly standing and our only engine for daily living. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.